Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Yeah, there's there's no question to know. David Lean. And you were the uh, head chapter leader of Colorado VHA? Clay Hayes. Uh, well, I got stalked by a mountain lion, uh, made a fishing pole out of a lodgepole pine. Falconry and bird dogs, can they coexist? Oh man, and do they. Shitty weather and lots of bears. That's what this podcast is about. You made a point when you get up in those high basins and the thunderstorms come rolling in. That's how I got into trail running. Some people are just wired that way. So Lee, have you ever had something so crazy happen to you in the woods that you brought it back to camp, you tried to tell people about, and they just didn't believe you? I have, yeah, a few times, and it's hard. Like, how do you make people believe something that is actually crazy and actually happened but sounds so ridiculous? Well, I'll tell you. I got the perfect situation for you right here. Here at Seek Outside on this podcast, we are going to be doing a blog writing contest. We want you, our listeners, to write a blog post about the craziest outdoor experience that you have ever had. Yeah, so we're going to be doing a podcast on December 1st where we will pick the top three and read them. And we're going to be picking the winner on that podcast. So you got to listen to make sure that you've won. It's going to be live. And guess what? The best part is... The winner is going to have their story published on our website, as well as they are going to win a Seek Outside Silex tent. That's awesome. Pretty dope. Yeah. So to win this, we're going to base it on three kind of judging criteria. Um, The craziness of the story itself. Is it life-threatening? Did you have a close encounter with wildlife? Did you have a close encounter with aliens? Uh, Was there, there some sort of natural phenomena that happened? Stuff like that. Also, believability. Um, Because we're asking for crazy stories, we want to see photos. Now, these don't have to be professional photos that you've taken with a $3,000 camera. They can be scans from a disposable camera for all we care. We just want to see something, right? Some proof. Uh, And then lastly, writing finesse. Um, So we're talking, you know, full sentences, the whole nines. They don't have to be super professional, but um, readable for sure. Exactly. We're not asking for Cormac McCarthy, but just something that, you know, we'll grab a listener and be able to live on our website forever. Um, Okay, guys, if you want to submit your crazy story, make sure you send the story um, to an email address. That email address is going to be podcast at seekoutside.com. In that email, make sure that the subject is believe it or not. And then your name in parentheses after that. And we will take a peek at all your guys' entries. And again, December 1st, we're going to be doing a semi-live podcast announcing the winner, giving away a Silex. So make sure that you, uh, you write it and you write it good. All right, guys. Enjoy the podcast. Can't wait. Hey guys, this is Ryan with the Seek Outside Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Kevin, Nathan, and uh, we also have a special guest today. He is a conservationist, uh, highly involved in BHA, and 
just conservation works everywhere. And now he's an author. His name is Ryan Bussey. Uh, we're going to be getting into some some hot topic issues today. Uh, just want to lay that out. Um, we have not read Ryan's book yet. It will be coming out in October here. Um, and we are not condoning or uh, pushing back against his book until we have had our chance to read the book. Um, but we are going to talk about gun control a little bit, um, as well as the process of writing a book and a little bit more about Ryan's uh, history and stuff like that. Um, so if you guys have any comments or concerns, feel free to write in to uh, our email podcast at seekoutside.com. Uh, but we just ask that you guys give this podcast a listen uh, with open ears so that, uh, you know, that's that's what these issues are about. It's about sussing out the details and, and trying to understand each other better. So without further ado, uh, Ryan, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on, and I uh, uh, appreciate chatting with you guys. I, I appreciate having a good open conversation. I think we need more of it, so thank you. So, Ryan, you used to be an executive in the firearms industry. I was. I, uh, I spent 20 <laughs> – well – at my at my former employer, which was Kimber, I uh, I was there for twenty five years and three days. Twenty five years and three days. Um, yeah. You received you had a lot of respect in the industry. You received awards among the industry. I'm going to imagine that almost everyone in that industry knows you um, fairly well, or many of the people know you fairly well. Um, yeah. Say, yeah. Same with things like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, um, SHOT Show, things like that. Yep. What yep. do you expect the response to be? Do you expect it to, I mean, we do expect, all of us expect it to be highly impassioned, but do you expect like that if you go to SHOT Show, people will be throwing stuff at you and you'll have a wanted poster up? Or do you expect that there's going to be some people that say, hey, Ryan, I agree with you totally? Well, I... I mean, I guess I would say uh, yes to all of that. <laughs> um, I guess let me start with what I hope for. Um, and the truth is, for the last, at least the last 15 years, there really hasn't been a conversation about any of the things that are in my book or about uh, the subject matter in general from inside of our community. Um Nobody like me has spoken out with any criticism because there's a totalitarian police state that exists. It's not official, but it exists in the same way it exists in some political circles in our country that doesn't allow any dissent or any opinion or any constructive criticism. Um, and I don't think that's a good way to conduct our politics. I don't think it's a good way to conduct um, business and industry. And I've never known any good idea that has to be propped up with, you know, persecution and trolling and totalitarian enforcement. And so I guess my dream is that this opens a constructive dialogue. And, and you know, I want to say up front, um, despite what some will want or some will say, the book is not an anti-gun book. Um, in fact, I'm a very proud gun owner. I sold millions of guns. I, you know, I won awards. I was on stages. I had, you know, fog machines and spotlights in my face. And um, I'm proud of, of my accomplishments. Um, 
my kids shoot with me every chance we get. And so there, there's no, I'm not anti-gun and, and quite the contrary. I believe that what I advocate for open dialogue um, for the good of everything that I hold dear. And I think that a lot of people hold dear. I think open dialogue and conversation about these topics is critical. So I'm sure that to, to answer your question a bit more directly, Kevin, um, there's going to be hate. I've already got a little bit, but I've been frankly overwhelmed with the the love, shall we say, from from corners that I didn't see coming. I mean, people direct messaging me or or reaching out or calling or emailing or literally mailing letters. Um, frankly, that it's it's been overwhelming, and so I think that there's a lot of people who just want a good open dialogue about this. Exactly. Um, so now the title is, um, what is the title? It's gunfight. Yeah. The title is gunfight. My battle against the industry that radicalized America is the subtitle. Okay. And I've noticed when I was looking through, uh, online a little bit, I noticed a lot of really positive reviews. I've seen the Senator Heinrich from New Mexico yep. speak very highly, highly of it. Yep. And he's very much a friend of the sporting in, sporting industry as well. Yeah. Um, so now are you still going to be involved with things like shot show or national shooting or any of that? Or is that, are you just saying like, I don't think I'm even going to be involved in that. I'm an author. I'm going to be on good morning America or whatever. It's very highly anticipated book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So to, to, a, a few things there. First off, yeah, I've been blown away with the national blurbs of support. Um, you know, Senator Heinrich is a friend. Um, frankly, he and his boys, you know, we trade, we trade pictures back and forth of elk or antelope or birds or fish or whatever that we shot, you know, his boys are, they're a little older than mine, but roughly the same age. Um, and I think very, very highly of him. Um, and his willingness to, to stand up, uh, anybody that's listening to the podcast can go back and research, um, Senator Heinrich's article, uh, with about the NRA and how it has kind of left sportsmen behind. And I think generally I concur with, he was very brave to write that article. Um, I generally concur with him on that. Um, Senator Tester, who's also a friend and somebody I uh, respect deeply, um, has said, you know, has gone on the record with very, very kind things to say about the book. Um, Jennifer Palmieri, who was President Obama's chief of communications in the White House uh, during some very trying times um, that had to do with gun violence. And she's a number one bestselling, New York Times bestselling author, has said very kind things about the book. Gabby Giffords, I could go on, I don't know, there's seven or eight of them now. But um, yeah, I've been overwhelmed with with that kind of support. Um, I think that the truth of the matter is, I will no longer, you know, I'll, I'll never be associated officially with the firearms industry. Um, and that's mostly because of the totalitarian nature, the all or nothing nature of, of the political reality that we discussed just a few moments ago. And that, that is, you know, you, you can never be pro gun enough and certainly an ounce of criticism has you out on your ear. So I, I knew that, um, I'm a big boy. That's why, I resigned my position before 
um, before news of this book was out. Um, I'm not, I'm not foolish. And um, yeah, I, I don't think I'll be um, associated with the firearms industry any longer. And, and the truth is I tried, the book is a lot about me trying for 15 years to slow down and work against some trends that I saw that are very troubling to me. And I think very troubling to the country. I tried the best I could from inside. Um, frankly, I, I lost a lot of those battles. Hard for me to admit that, but I did. And um, so now I'm going to do everything I can to save the things that I love, the sport I love, the shooting sports I love um, from, you know, what I think is a potential runaway brush fire. And um, I'm going to do everything I can. And that means I'll, I'll have to do it from outside the industry, but I, but I will be doing it. So Ryan, you had mentioned that at some point the, the industry changed. And I think that's pretty clear. I mean, you used to be able to go to Sears and, you know, get a gun or, or uh, I guess you still can go to Walmart, but, you know, you used to go to like the family stores to be able to get a gun and the whole industry was very family friendly. Uh, you, you mentioned that it was about 15, 20 years ago that uh, you started to notice a change. Was there any legislation or anything in particular that kind of sparked that change? Yeah. So, um, you know, fantastic question. Um, one with a lot of a lot of deep and um, <laughs> a lot of deep and complicated answers. Uh, yeah. The 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 truth is, at least with me, um, you know, I think s- change is hard, right? Um, most people don't change their, you know, most people don't change substantially who they are throughout their life. They they evolve, but um, they don't change it. And I think our society has got to a point where it really disdains personal introspection and change. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I, I think that's very, very dangerous, um, because I, things are changing around us and I think it's incumbent upon, um, responsible citizens to change with those things or against those things as, as they're used. And the 15 years ago thing was really a personal, um, thing for me. I, um, I did a press conference at the National Press Club in 2004 where I criticized the Bush administration's oil and gas development um, plans because it was attacking some very sacred places to me across the West, had many of them in the crosshairs of the Rhone Plateau in Colorado, um, which we all know has, you know, compared to what it was 25 years ago, it was was just a, a literally beautiful elk mecca and now there's a lot of industrial development there the rome plateau the volvidal in new mexico the badger two medicine in montana these were all in the sites of um of the bush administration and i i will clarify um you know i grew up as a conservative kid i i thought i was a republican i was a republican i um i voted for george bush i i thought you know all ranch kids were supposed to be conservative, God-fearing, red-blooded, you know, gun bears. And so when I got into the industry, I was too. Um, I didn't give it a lot of thought. I Politics that fit on bumper stickers, frankly, they seem pretty, pretty easy for me to latch on to. Um, I remember when I moved to Montana, there was a bumper sticker. I remember giving a guy a, a thumbs up. The, his bumper sticker said, uh, liberals one a day foreign possession, you know, like it was a duck regulation. And I gave the guy a thumbs up like, shit, yeah, man, that's me. Um, I just didn't think much about it. But when something very, very dear to me came in the sights of people who I thought were supposed to be um, my allies and who the gun industry told me 
were my allies. Um, and then when I did that press conference and was attacked very viciously by the very tops of the gun industry and my job was targeted and the same sort of trolling totalitarianism that we see now on the right side, uh, certainly mostly on the right side of politics, where you can never be Trump enough or you can, you know, you're tossed out, you're trolled, your life is destroyed, your job is come after. Well, that's what happened to me. And I sort of stood back and I thought, what the hell? These people said they were for hunters. <laughs> They've, I mean, we market to hunters. We, we use hunting in all the names of guns. I mean, that's where all of our social credit comes from. Everybody told me that's what this was about. And then the first test for me, I figured out, oh shit, this really isn't about hunters. The first thing that comes up will be gobbled up as long as it just keeps driving whatever political power machine we have. And it took me a little while, but I stood back from that and said, okay, I've been duped here. Like, and it just happened to me because it was these wild places were so incredibly sacred to me. Um, I think that if it wouldn't have been something that stark, I, I doubt that I would have changed, you know, just so I, I hate to say I was lucky in that regard, but I do kind of count myself as lucky that something almost like your family was attacked, right? Like something, so, it took something that meaningful to sort of shake me into reality. And um, from there on out, um, I started, I wasn't a true believer anymore, still in the industry, still wanted to build a company, still love guns, still love shootings, all that stuff. But the true belief had left me. And when that veil sort of fell from my eyes, I started seeing, at least in my opinion, I started seeing a lot of things that everybody else in the industry didn't see because the true belief was there. And then it started building up. Now, um, it just so happens that that corresponds. So that's my personal story, right? But it just so happens that that corresponds roughly with a very important liability shield law that was passed by the Bush administration um, after the two after um, Bush won his his second term. Um, the year after that, a law named PLACA, the Pro Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, was passed, and that essentially provides um, a liability shield. Um, for the firearms industry. Um, and there were parts of that that I appreciate and like. And, and, and frankly, I still am sort of torn about it because the, the firearms industry was in the crosshairs of a lot of municipal lawsuits, just like the cigarette industry was. And that, you know, that cigarette, the cigarette lawsuits ended with the sort of restrictions we see today on, on um, cigarette marketing, you know, can't market to kids, have to have these warnings on cigarettes, all, all this stuff. That that was basically born of that $264 billion settlement um, in 2003 and 2004. Um, but I I wonder if the if the Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act didn't also protect some of the worst actors and some of the worst actions uh, in our industry, because prior to those years, the industry was <clears throat> was really very concerned with responsibility. Um, for instance, at the SHOT Show, um, the industry SHOT Show owned and operated by the industry and the NSSF. So, you know, the industry makes up its own rules. You know, up until the mid-2000s, late 2000s, you couldn't even display a tactical vest, a tactical glove, an AR-15, anything in the main part of the show at all, anywhere. It was policed. Um, you had to be in the. You had to have law enforcement credentials, training credentials. It was walled off. You had to have the credentials to go in there, because in the industry, that that wasn't a law. 
that was just a self-imposed decency thing. And and the guns were legal, right? Even even during the assault weapons ban, AR-15 was legal it, as long as it didn't have a list of features on the gun. So th- these things were not illegal and banned. This this was just a self-imposed decency thing that the industry knew to, you know, it knew not to break the social compact. Um, wasn't required to, just knew not to do it. And all of this conflagration of my personal stuff, the Protection and Lawful Commerce Act, it all happened around that mid, that in the latter half of Bush's term. And I think that was the turning point. I didn't know it then. I didn't like foresee everything that we've dealt with the last few years. I didn't see that in particular, but I felt I felt a rumbling that that was, you know, like like people who know a tsunami's coming, right? Like the water's going out. That's not good. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but that's not good. That's what I felt like. Ryan, this is Nathan. Um, I'm a lifelong sportsman. Um, I worked for four years as a buyer at a sporting goods store that sold guns. We were a Kimber dealer as well. So I've seen a bit of the industry. Um, I've seen a major shift in the gun industry over the last 20 years from sporting arms to more tactical style arms. And uh, of course, none of us have read your book. Um, and I'm, I'm curious just exactly what you're proposing, what you're for, what you're against, what problems specifically you see in the, in the gun industry. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's a great, question, Nathan, too. Um, and I want to be careful uh, because my publishing folks will will uh, do horrible things to me and um, and, uh, and, and perhaps in, and inflict painful things if I if I give away too much of the book. But um, I I am mostly concerned with a runaway culture, right? I'm not I'm not um, proposing these draconian uh, conspiracy theory things that most people think I am or that I often read about or that I endured through much of my career, like President Obama is going to outlaw hunting ammunition and he's going to rewrite the Constitution. Good God. QAnon's got nothing on that craziness, right? I mean, that's just foolish to say that. And, 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 I'm, not, and I'm not advocating for or proposing um, really, although I do think we need to strengthen background checks, I just don't know why that's ever been... Uh, any sort of problem. I really don't. Um, that's the one policy prescription that I think is just a no brainer. And even that in this polarized uh, environment is now a subject of much, um, <laughs> much anger and, and um, insults hurled with some measure of velocity. Um, I think that we have a culture problem. Um, Nathan, my main issue is that there's this weird faux patriot fetishization of that seems to now glorify gun owners that invade capitals with hundred round AR-15s and tactical vests, as if that is some healthy or sustainable thing in a democracy. Um, to put it very mildly, I think it's a big ass problem, and it's that culture that I think we as gun owners have to address. In my opinion, we have to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. There's a lot of onions that are coming up here. Um, a lot of these questions, a lot of these answers are having several layers. Um, 
which is awesome, right? There's a, there's a lot of depth here. This can be totally unpacked. How do you think, because back in that time frame that you're talking about 2005, social media started to become more prominent in the latter 2000s. Yeah. How do you think social media has impacted those narratives as well? I think it's huge and huge and not in a good way. Although, you know, right, social media has impacted everything. So this is not something we can turn back. But when you had this conflagration of liability, so all of a sudden gun companies no longer had to worry about if irresponsible marketing took place. Um, mm. I didn't see it then. I was a I was a part of it, right? We I mean I my company helped sell guns on social media. We paid influencers. Um I didn't see it as clearly as I see it now, but the sort of stuff that is done on social media now and glorified and frankly paid for by both endemic industry advertisers and non-endemic um would have never ever been tolerated 15, 18, 19 years ago. Not it wasn't illegal. It's just that no gun company would have done it because they would have, I mean, essentially said, holy shit, that's irresponsible. Bad stuff might happen. We might be held to account if this crazy person that we advertise with or pay goes out and says these wild things or does crazy things with AR-15s or encourages people to do crazy things or all, all the stuff that we see on social media now, right? That you have to be wilder and crazier and more hits and more hits and more clicks. And like it, it never slows down. Um, that would have never, ever flown 15, 20 years ago. And again, it was self-imposed imposed decency. That decency is inside the DNA of the industry. You know, and I think if we're talking about making things great again, going back to a time when we care about responsibility as much as we care about freedom because a democracy does not last without equal doses of those would be a damn good thing to go back to. Yeah. You know, you, you keep bringing up the uh, self-imposed decency. Yeah. And I mean, hunters have done the self-imposed decency, right? That's where the whole conservation ethic has come. But a lot of times companies, and this seems to be partly social, I do think has some fault in it because it feeds you based on what you like. So you can go down these rabbit holes and just get lost in this rabbit hole. The next thing you know, you're, you're waist deep in conspiracy theories or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But there also does seem to be that lack of decency in a lot of industries where it's much more of a sell everything at all costs, get more extreme, get more of this. Right. And that self-imposed decency, I do think, um, not just the hunting industry or the gun industry, I think, the outdoor industry. I think you could apply that to a million things. Uh, I think you could apply it to the car industry, frankly. I, I mean, absolutely. I just think, you know, a democracy exists. It's a, it's a fragile thing. Um, and a democracy does not exist solely on freedom, nor does it uh, exist solely on restrictions of freedom or responsibility. But when the balance gets out of whack, you know, bad disastrous things can happen. And um, I'm distressed at the degree to which guns seem to be at the center of so much of our current national angst and vitriol. Um, I note to many people that the January 6th insurrectionists 
um, marched on the Capitol, tried to overthrow a lawful election, and many of them waved flags. And they weren't flags of barbecue grills. They weren't flags of their Nike shoes. They weren't flags of seek outside tents or teepees. They were flags of the Confederacy, the AR-15, and come and take it. And I don't think that's by accident, right? The, the, some things are more important to apply responsibility to than others. And things that can, that can kill our fellow citizens or that are dangerous, um, they just require responsibility. That's not, that does, that's not to say that I'm anti them at all. Again, I don't even know how many guns I own. I literally don't. I'm, I'm, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands. I, I don't know how much I've shot in my life. Um, my left ear will tell you it's a lot. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't responsibility. And I just think that, that our country is out of whack right now. And we as gun owners and hunters, for our own sake, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of the stuff we love, we need to rebalance this thing. Yeah. So, Ryan, it sounds like, um, of course, I tried to pin you down to, you know, what you were for or against. And I know you've got some restrictions on what you can do, but it, it sounds like you believe that the radicalized gun culture that is present in our nation is the real problem. And at at least two things I'm picking up on that could be the cause of that are social media causing echo chambers where the algorithm just keeps showing people the same things that they have interacted with. And, you know, they just show more and more and more and more of the same thing. People become more and more uh, inundated with that and, and radicalized and reinforced in that. And then you join that with capitalism without morality or judgment or responsibility. Um, you know, the big gun companies now, the big ones are all corporations. Um, and you can see that in the quality of the firearms, uh, the quality in hunting rifles is not what is, you know, it's not the hand fit pre 1964 Winchester. Um, so would you say that, that those are two of the keys of the, radicalized position that we're in is the social media, the echo chamber, the capitalism without the judgment. And are there any other keys that you think have contributed to the, where we're at? Well, I think you, by the way, maybe you should write a book. You're pretty good at it. Um, I think you, you hit on some very important, um, very important issues. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge complex feedback loop. It's just like everything in our country. You know, I go, I go back to, to the days when I like gave thumbs up at simple bumper sticker, political slogans. We all want these things to be simple, right? I mean, the nation wants simple answers and simple problems and simple villains. Well, shit, man, none of this is simple. It's all nuance. It's all complex feedback loops. Um, to your point, it's social media. Yes. It's corporate capitalism. Yeah. It's gun companies feeding it instead of being, instead of adhering to the old responsibility that, that we all used to adhere to. Yeah. Like it's some of all of these things. Um, and the trolls and, you know, the 30-second media snippets and everything, nuance is not respected and it doesn't sell. <laughs> it doesn't, it generally doesn't sell books. Um, it doesn't drive advertising. Simplicity does. So um, it, it, it's my, my answer, I guess, I hate, I'm not trying to shirk it, but I'm tired of pretending 
that there are simple causes and simple answers. There really aren't. Yeah. It, it's it's nuanced everywhere, and we've got to look. We've got to look on our ourselves in the eyes everywhere, and and address these things, um, and and admit to ourselves that they're complex. Now, I've seen. I see several people with bumper stickers. You keep referencing the bumper stickers that are. I think you could accurately describe them as their Second Amendment voters only. Yeah. They don't care yeah. about anything else. Yeah. And that, to me, seems to be quite extreme as well. You also mentioned trolls. I mean, there's there seriously could be a troll problem here, especially in social media echo chambers. Yeah. Um, they are prevalent. Other countries do see trolls. It's been something to help um, to help uh, control the narrative or change the narrative. It's been used forever, right? It's just that with the computer platform and with the social media stuff, you can be so much more efficient and targeted with your comments and your trolling than you used to be, say, when you were forced to do things via email or just regular mail and actual advertisements yep that's right um and that's why that i think that kevin one of the things you hit on is that i mean i think it was uh nathan who asked me about what to do and maybe we should just let this play out like the oil barons and like the truth is now though our world is so accelerated um i don't think we have 20 years to let this sort of sort out yeah. <laughs> we, we got to do it because Things are changing, you know, week by week, month by month. And social media fuels that in a way that is so much faster than, you know, 1912. <laughs> it just, just happened. And, and that's why, essentially, that's why I wrote the book, because I could no longer sit back and say, well, you know, this will all sort out. Yeah, no big deal. Let's wait a couple of generations. I, I just, I'm just not going to do that to my kids. I'm not going to do that to me. I'm not going to do that to my dad who's still alive. Um, we need to address this stuff now. I do think there's danger in not questioning yourself and drinking your own Kool-Aid too much in any industry. Um, you could say the same about hunting, right? If we, if we all got on board and we said, we do not care about the process. We just care about the end result and we're going to turn our head to everyone because the bad actors or whatever, um, the result of that would not be positive. Yeah. That, and I think you hit on something, Kevin, what I, what I saw over time in the industry, you know, it started, well, there's a, there's a very interesting story in the book in which I play a kind of a prominent role about how I really think it started. Um, but I experienced this sort of, um, slapping down dissent or any differing opinions really coming down on me heavily with the story I told you about with my national press club appearance in 2004. But what you come to understand is an industry that tolerates literally zero difference of opinion is eventually going to end up at a place like this, right? Cause you can never criticize. I mean, if somebody goes out with your seek outside products tomorrow, I don't, I don't quite know how you're going to misuse these tents, but let's just say, somebody does and you have this sort of culture where you can't like you're so bought into it that you can't criticize them. Well, you're only going to get more of that, especially if it happens to sell you some tents. 
Um, you're, and that, that runaway, I think it started sort of in the industry as like this campfire, you know, sort of like, Hey, we can sort of stay warm around this thing. It's not too bad. And then like, well, shit, it's kind of a brush fire. Well, and then it's like, Oh my God, the wind is coming up and everything's dry. Well, like it's got away from us. Like, you know, and that's what it feels like to me. So I'd like to get your thoughts on something and see if they kind of match up with mine. Uh, my home state is Tennessee, and we are now starting July 1st, one of 19 states to have permitless carry. So any citizen of the great state over 21 years of age can legally concealed or open carry a handgun without a permit and without any training whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I said previously that uh, I worked in a gun store. I have a concealed carry permit. Uh, I've been through a few of those trainings and stuff, but more importantly, I worked in a gun store for four years. We had a little old lady who was a widow and her husband had a 38 revolver. And after he passed, she heard a noise outside one night and got scared and she got that revolver and she cocked it and she didn't know how to decock it. So she brought it into our store in a bread sack that little old lady, I don't want her to be carrying a firearm without some form of training or firearm safety or something. Um, that's just my personal opinion. You know, Second Amendment rights are great, but people need to know what in the world they're doing with probably the most dangerous tool they're ever going to handle. Um, you know, and there, there's a lot of examples of us moving that direction where there is just a in my judgment, a lack of judgment and responsibility. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Kent, when are you writing your book? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm already on record. There was a um, th- there was a law passed in Montana, um, House Bill 102, which um, legalized permitless concealed carry in Montana. Um, and I'm opposed to that. I was opposed to it then. Um, it's not that I'm opposed to concealed carry. It's not that I'm opposed to the right to protect yourself. All of these things that the Second Amendment absolutist will now probably come down on me like the hounds of hell about. That's just it's that's just silly talk. Um, it's it, it it is silly talk to think that um, educating yourself, going through proper training, ensuring that guns are handled properly. Um, it's it's silly talk to think that any of that is in some way, you know, a horrible thing for gun owners. It just isn't. I don't believe it is. Um, I'm with you, Nathan. I, I, I just think that, that's not even, that's not even that controversial. Um, I don't, I don't like you, I don't care how many guns you own, how many you carry. If you carry a different one every day, I, I don't see what's wrong with requiring that you go through concealed carry permitting to do it. Now, I don't think that permitting should be onerous. I don't think it should take you four years to get your permit. I don't think you should have to do, you know, go through law school to pass the test. Like there's limits to everything, right? But back to the balance. I'm fearful that our responsibility and freedom balance is getting out of whack. And um, I think if we as gun owners allow that and hunters, we allow that to go too far. um, It's just not going to end up in good places. I would agree. I mean, how do we all feel about just anybody getting behind the wheel of a car? No license required, no testing. 
Um, no real age requirement, just for freedom. You know, you're tall enough to see above the wheel. Go for it. You know, to get a hunting license, you have to get a hunter safety certificate. You go through firearms training for that. Uh, it, it's just mind boggling to me the, the direction that we're heading. Well, um, I think so. I think that, you know, one argument that I often encounter is that, well, you don't have a constitutional right to a car. You don't have a constitutional right to hunting. You don't like, okay. And, and like all constitutional rights, um, what the second amendment means is always in flux because the Supreme court is always interpreting it. They're going to, they're going to hear another case in October about the New York concealed carry law. Um, and so our laws have always been in flux. Our constitu- the way the constitution is, is interpreted has always been in flux. That's why we have a Supreme court. That's why we have cases that come up. That's why we, you know, have appeals courts. Um, but I think it's fair to say that no right is absolute. And there is a large movement in the United States now, um, rightfully called second amendment absolutism, which argues that there literally is no constant. There is no legal constitutional restriction on your right to keep and bear arms. Um, I find that interesting because I don't, I don't believe that any of us think it's a good idea for the dude down the street to have an A-10 Warthog or an M1 Abrams tank or thermonuclear warheads, or, I mean, I could go on down. Like, so I think that most sane people understand that we live within restrictions of the second amendment every day. Um, we've agreed that most of them are there for good reasons. Now, if Kevin always wanted an M1 Abrams tank live with lots of ammo and he can't have one because of this is Kevin theoretically harmed because he can't have his tank, I guess, but we've agreed that for a functioning society, it, it might be better if everybody doesn't have those tanks. Um, my point here is that we're not in, in the United States. We're not really arguing about whether any line is ever to exist as if this is some new thing and some controversial thing. We're strictly arguing about whether the line moves an inch to the right or an inch to the left, because we live with this line every day, you know, back to the tank or the rocket launchers or the fully automatic Tommy guns, which have long been heavily regulated um, since 1934. So I think that we often fall into this argument, like we're debating this brand new thing that's going to severely restrict. No, we're not. No, we're not. We already live with reasonable restrictions all the time. And our society has already agreed that for democracy to work, all rights need to have some balance. Hey, I need that tank to protect my house. <laughs> you know, because my plan is not to protect them with like a sawed-off shotgun, is if I have an intruder to just go to the backyard where I have my tank stashed, yeah. turn it on, and just blow the whole thing to smithereens. Honestly, I'm going to tell you right now, Kevin, it's damn hard to conceal carry a tank, but whatever, you <laughs> give it a shot. Uh, I've got another question. Just, uh, you know, when I was a buyer at the at the gun store, um, just in the last 10 years, there's been such a move from, it seemed like gun companies trying to offer good quality firearms to offering firearms that skirt the law. Um, you know, it, it was the preponderance of bump fire stocks, which make AR-15s and other semi-automatic weapons operate as if they are fully automatic. Um, you know, it was those type stocks coupled with 60 or 100 round magazines that um, 
was it the Las Vegas shooter was able to kill more than 50 people firing into a crowd. You yeah. Know, that, that's almost, sort of almost six, almost 600 casualties in that between. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up in a town of 600 people. There were almost as many casualties between injured and dead as the town I grew up in, in, you know, a few minutes in Las Vegas. Yeah. And, and it's not just that. I mean, the, the gun companies are uh, skirting laws on short barreled shotguns and I mean, braces and all kinds of things to avoid the class three laws and NFA and, and all this stuff. And it just seems like there's a concerted effort to push the envelope as much as possible. Well, I, I guess I go back to the self-imposed decency. I, I, um, it wasn't very long ago that, you know, this was not like a hundred years ago when no gun company would have done that because they were worried about breaking the social compact. This, this fragile sort of unspoken, unwritten thing that you just a line you never wanted to cross. Um, again, it wasn't, it wasn't legal, although the, there wasn't the, the protection of lawful commerce and arms act didn't exist. then. so it, it, there is some overlap with legal, but people just knew just knew not to do that. <laughs> you know, it just wasn't something you did. And I think you're right. It has happened and been accelerated in the last 12, 13, 14 years, but it's back to this complex nuanced thing, this sort of feedback loop system of social media, more extreme, corporate capitalism, profits, faster, harder, more, you know, it just like, you know, it never slows down. In fact, it's accelerating. Um, and I, I don't know what the answer is. All I can do is put all that stuff on a graph and look at where it's going and look at what the line's doing and think, Judas, that just is going no place good. I, I don't know what to do exactly to fix it, but we have to, we, we have to have the conversation that you just had. We have to make the points that you just had. Those are not, those are not extreme points. Sounds like an avalanche to me. Yeah. <clears throat> It's a demand well, problem. The, I mean, the the problem is individual consumers have demand for these things that maybe they think they shouldn't have or that no one else has. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I really don't know. But it, it starts with it's not just a supply problem. It's a demand problem because the supply wouldn't be there if people weren't buying it. Yeah, well, I doubt the demand would be there if we weren't pumping as much fuel as we are into social media accounts that are driving that demand, again, it's a sort of big circular feedback loop. Creating the, you're cultivating the demand yeah. via social media or other groups that is, you know, and maybe, maybe the self-regulation then is to just not cultivate the demand for those things and focus on things that, um, everyday people need. Well, and, you know, we shouldn't ignore the role that modern culture has in this. Um, movies, whatever. Um, games. Um, I mean, my kids play games. Um, I, don't, I don't let them play as many video games as they want, but when I, when I walk into some, I'm like, Judas, really? Like, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so, let's not just lay it all on uh, gun companies or gun owners or, or social media accounts. It, it is complex, but those, that sort of glamorization happened in 1934 too, right? Everybody 
thought not everybody, but a lot of people thought Al Capone was cool and that Tommy guns mowing down people in Chicago and across the country and having the gang wars of those days were cool, but we regulated those guns, you know, since 19, since the gun control, the, the firearms control act, the NFA of 1934, you, you don't just get to run down to, um, local gun store and buy fully auto this with a drum magazine that and trot downtown. They're not illegal. You can buy them with a tax stamp. You can go through the long background check, but we regulated them. We did something to slow down that societal trend. We didn't feed it. We didn't, we didn't pump it full of social media. We didn't have social media then, but you know, there is an example of not banning something, but just like stepping back and taking a deep breath. So let's, let's change our topic a little bit. And it, it's not because uh, of anything of where this discussion is going, but let's talk about Ryan becoming an author. Okay. Especially since Nathan's probably going to become an author as well at some point. I, I, honestly, I think it's I working no, on. I think I think you already have your manuscript done and you're just honing it. But whatever, keep going. I, I have three notes on the scratch pad here. That's uh, that's the the extent of my. You're an author. <laughs> So Ryan, uh, when did you start to kind of envision yourself as being an author? Did you have a time when you were like, I'm going to write a book? Um, I've written more and more uh, just about um, the things I'm passionate about. A lot of, you know, a lot of hunting stuff, bird hunting stuff, conservation stuff. I wrote opinions in the New York Times through the last, like probably accelerating through the last seven, eight, nine years. Um as an outlet for me to really weigh in on the stuff I cared about as I fought those battles I told you about, I was trying to fight kind of inside and tangential to the industry. Um, writing a book is one of those, if you write quite a bit, like, you know, stories, articles, the things that I did write, and most of those are all on my website. Um, you can kind of see the evolution of it. But you start to think about over time, well, maybe I could write a book, but um, it's a damn daunting thing to to write a, a good book. It really is. Um, it took me many, many months to do it. Um, it took a lot of 3 a.m. mornings, sometimes, most of the time working till noonish or so, but then um, breaking and then maybe starting again and working till midnight. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's, and if you're going to write a, a good book and, and my main, my first goal, believe it or not, was not to, um, not to big, make, make a big social message or create a bunch of controversy or write a book that was so hot that you guys want to do a podcast about it. Um, my first goal was to tell a story that somebody like you guys wanted to read, write Just write a good book. Something, something that you would say, you know, to your friend, Hey, Bob, this is a really good book. I, I loved it. I want you to read it. Like that's the kind of book I wanted to write. And, um, it's easy to just go spout off a bunch of opinion and throw a bunch of words on paper. It's a lot harder to structure a 360 page book to keep you engrossed in it. Um, I, hopefully I did that. You know, the people who have read it have said that I've done that. Um, but that was my first goal. And then as I went on, I realized in telling my story that there was, and I had, you know, I had people, agents, editors, coaches along the way said, look, 
this is a very, very, very important story for our country. And I started to see that it was more than just my memoir, that this was really the story of our, of our country. And so many people I would run into, they, as I would tell them about it, they would see pieces of themselves in this story. Um, like Nathan, like, you know, hey, I used to work at a gun store. I see part of that. Like, we, people experience that. And I, I realized that I wasn't really telling, I was telling my story, but in doing so, I was telling the larger trajectory of our country and, and explaining about how it is we got where we got and answering some of the questions that we've been talking about today. So what about books in the future? Do you got any, any upcoming plans for books after this? Uh, See where maybe, this one goes? Yeah. You know, yeah. you, um, after you complete a great big project, it's hard to think about the next one, but. Um, I'm curious about the process of the writing. What, what did you find was the most difficult? Was it facts and figures and references and, um, you know, the details and making sure all of that stuff was right and correct and in order, or was it the structure or was it making it readable or, or, or what? Well, don't mean to cop out an answer, but the truth is the hard part of writing a really good book is incorporating the proper balances of all those things. Um, you know, any of us can have a couple beers and tell a decent story around the campfire, you know, a short one. So, you know, storytelling can happen. Any of us can pop off a couple facts and figures that we remember. So, you know, that can happen. Um, any of us can order it right, you know, in short snippets, but to do it over whatever, I, you know, I think I have 25 chapters or, or something like that to, to structure it, to outline it, to stick to the message. And then, you know, I'll let you in on a little bit about the book. There's a, the way the book is structured is there's kind of a narrow lens um, sort of feel about my personal story. And then the book often pulls back in a wider lens to tell the story of the country kind of concurrent with what I'm living through. And then the book sort of alternates between those two tight on me, wide on the country, tight on me, wide on the country. And um, that that's relatively difficult to do and write it in a way that you don't just want to toss it in the trash on chapter three, right? So um, it's it's hard to balance those things. Yeah, well, I mean, you get into anything artistic, and I feel like the tendency is to just self-dissect everything. I know both myself and Kevin, you know, play some music, and we, I, I know I do that all the time. Yeah, um, and not, and I've done some writing as well, not like in a book. And to be real clear, I have a very loose association with the English language in a correct way. Uh, I'm not very good at grammar. So the fact that I've been published a lot, I used to be published a lot for security articles and stuff um, as well. And I used to get paid to write for some magazines occasionally. Um, but <clears throat> thank God for editors. That was like my saving thing there. And I also kind of came to the conclusion that the editors have to change stuff anyway. So I can just give them my grammar as a starting point. And that's, that'll be, but a lot of times in my experience, sometimes I would struggle with writing something. And then all of a sudden I'd wake up one night at two in the morning and it would just be ready to flow like a faucet. And I would have to get up and go to my computer and just start writing 
till whenever that faucet sort of turned off. Yeah, there's, I definitely felt that I would, there, there are, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 page sections in the book that might've taken me an hour or two to write. And there are paragraphs in the book that probably took me a month to perfect. Um, and so it, Sometimes, like you said, Kevin, it, it flows. And, you know, I, I, I experienced that. I would just, like, I would set straight up and think, holy shit, that's how it's going to come together. And I would just run down and to my computer and, like, there it went. It just, like, there it goes. And um, then, you know, oftentimes I couldn't get a verb right for two days. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now back to back to the process of writing the book. You said it's 25 chapters, 300 and some pages. Yeah. Was, was that your vision? Like when you sat down or, or did you think this is going to be a little handbook, like some of the more hunting, um, like the Pashawitz books, right? No, or some- no. I, um, I decided from the beginning, once I started on the book, cause I have this sort of all or nothing personality. I really can't do stuff halfway. I decided if I was going to write a book that I was going to write this good one with this good story, but I had, you know, um, I read a fair amount. And for me, like a serious book is 300 pages. I don't know why I just have that number in my head. It's it's nothing, but I just think, and so I always had this idea, like, I'm going to, I'm going to write this. The book's going to be at least 300 pages. Now I never imposed that. Um, to answer one of the other questions, like one of the hardest things to do was to outline the book. Like this chapter is going to have this, this like literally outline it. And when, when I outlined it, I had maybe a half to three quarters of a page um, of each chapter. So I would just condense the chapter down or the idea of the chapter down. And it was hard, very hard to do that outline it, get everything where I wanted. Um, and remember I'm trying to condense, well, essentially my whole life, but really especially 25 years into these chapters. And so I'm shuffling timeframes around. Once I had that, then I could sort of sit down and, and pound stuff out um, and follow that outline. When does the book come out? It's published October 19th. October and if you want to have me arrested or um, punished for being so stupid as to have a book launch in the middle of hunting season, you're totally justified. Totally justified. <laughs> oh, man. No, I think... I think we'll probably invite you back on and uh, the podcast will say something like best-selling New York, New York times, best-selling author. Yeah. Ryan I don't Wilson. know. We'll, we'll see. I mean, it is, it's getting a lot of buzz. Um, you know, I'm honored about all that. I decided when, you know, once I was through the process, I want to write a book that makes a difference because I care about this stuff. Um, people will say that I'm trying to be anti this or anti that I'm really not. In fact, I view it as a pro-gun and pro-American book, and I think it's in all of our best interest to be thoughtful and have these conversations and be responsible. So I hope the book makes a difference. Was there like an epiphany one day and you just like three years, five years, or even a year and a half ago that you just said, I'm going to write a book? Or was it like a long, slow buildup? To that? It was kind of a long, slow buildup, to be honest with you. But I will tell you this. I was well through the book um, on January 6th. But on January 6th, on that day, as I watched and listened to a lot of the same stuff that you guys did, um, that was that was a moment of epiphany for me. Um, yes, I had already done most or maybe all of it. I can't remember where, or, or I was in the editing process, but I thought this thing is, this thing's really important. 
Like I, I started to believe what my editors and agents and everybody tell me about how in, important this topic was because I saw it play out in real time um, in front of my face. And, and, and I felt like guns were so much a part of that and had been so much a part of that political movement. It really, really shook me. It distressed me a lot. Um, and, and that, that was, it was a turning point in a different way. That was when I knew this is important and I got to lean into it. Well, there are, <clears throat> you are not the first person that has been very involved in the gun industry as a writer or as an employee that I've talked to that has expressed concern. I remember when the NRA stuff first happened, I asked someone who I thought was very thought provoking and um, what they thought of it. And they said pretty much like good riddance. Uh, the NRA's way lost its way um, from what they were initially supposed to do. So there has been at least within people that even I, I regard pretty well within the industry, there's been some occasional um, thoughts of like, Hey, we're not really doing this right. Yeah. And, and that's, I guess that's what I asked. Um, none of those, none of those people speak out publicly. Um, at least I never heard them. Um, and over the years, whatever dissent was, was squelched very, very quickly um, because it was clear what would happen to you. I mean, your, your job was first and then, you know, your kids or your wife or social media accounts or trolling like that all was in the, on, in the mix too. So people got the message quick. You, you didn't, you may think that stuff, but you don't criticize it. And um, I just think you can't have a conversation as a country. If we can't have a conversation, <laughs> I don't know how we move forward. Right. So, so the question everyone wants to know, and then I don't have anything else, Nathan, Ryan, if you guys got stuff, jump in, but what kind of food do you feed your bird dogs? So, uh, I switched, uh, a few years ago and I don't know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure this is the proper answer, but I'll give it. So I, we feed this Costco organic stuff. Um, and my dogs are doing great on it. It's easy to buy because you know you can go to costco and like pack up 18 bags of whatever just like everybody else does with their potato chips or whatever and um my dogs especially like the salmon stuff and they they seem to do great on it so so far so good been doing that about four years i got one more question for you ryan have you ever searched your name on youtube <laughs> <laughs> i try not to do that and that's one of the things as as you enter, you know, once I decided to enter this space, um, I'm not naive. I know the unhinged stuff that is said about me or, you know, whatever. Um, I do find it humorous that people will take parts of their days and weeks to um, rant and construct and foam at the mouth videos about me because I really no BS. I really don't think I'm that important. I don't know why they seem to want to take that much time to have such a, such a, uh, passionate opinion about me, shall we say, but th there, there we go. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you very much. That was super informative. Uh, how do we get our hands on some, on a couple copies here? Yeah, we can, we can figure <laughs> out something to, to get them to you for sure. Um, yeah, well, we're just, 
sort of along for the ride now. We'll hope for the best. Yeah. Well, we'd definitely love to have you back on in maybe October or November. That would be awesome. Yeah.